just hearing what's happening in the lobby and as people leave and the conversations and the dialogue that's happening is absolutely magical. And to be able to take that experience and make it not just the nine days of, in our case, the nine days of our festival into a 365 day a year experience is something really quite extraordinary. This is the Box Office Podcast. I'm Russ Fisher, the editorial director of the Box Office Studios, and I am here with Daniel Luria, the editorial director of Box Office Pro, Rebecca Polly, the deputy editor of Box Office Pro, and Sean Robbins, the chief analyst at Box Office Pro. This week, we're going to speak with Patrick Schweiss, the executive director of the Mary D. Fisher Theater in Sedona, Arizona, and also the uh, executive director of the Sedona International Film Festival. And that interview is part of our Indie Focus series, which is brought to you by Spotlight Cinema Networks. Spotlight Cinema Networks is the only cinema advertising company dedicated to serving the needs of art house luxury and dine-in exhibitors for cinema advertising, pre-show entertainment, events, cinema, and digital display distribution. Spotlight offers unique revenue-generating advertising programs tailored to an upscale and influential cinema audience. In collaboration with Box Office Pro, Spotlight Cinema Networks is proud to present Indie Focus, a monthly interview series profiling industry thought leaders, iconic art houses, and executives from the country's leading luxury theaters. To find out more about Spotlight Cinema Networks, visit Spotlight Cinema Networks, all one word, dot com. And now, Rebecca, let's talk about Box Office. Yeah, I know, Sean, we were talking about this. While the estimates uh, were coming in over the weekend, it did look like Halloween Kills might have crossed that $50 million mark, in which case it would be the third consecutive weekend that a new release crossed that $50 million mark. Um, Unfortunately, when the everything shuffled out, we got the actuals. uh, New release Halloween Kills actually debuted to around $49.4 million from uh, right around 3,700 screens. So we didn't hit that three consecutive $50 million opener milestone, but we did hit the third consecutive domestic weekend uh, where the total box office has reached over $100 million in North America. First time we did that since pre-pandemic, January 2020. I don't Yay. know if our... Can we get the clap for that? Can, I don't can know if our producers that? can like uh, insert some sort of happy sound. <laughs> <laughs> With that 49.4 million opening weekend gross, Halloween Kills, which debuted uh, simultaneously in theaters and on Peacock, became the highest grossing SVOD day and date film of all time, uh, surpassing Godzilla vs. Kong, which debuted to 31.6 million when it came out uh, earlier this year on HBO Max and in theaters. It's had the uh, highest three-day opening weekend for a horror film during the pandemic, beating A Quiet Place Part Two, And it had the highest grossing horror opening weekend, in fact, since It Chapter 2 came out in September 2019. Uh, Remains to be seen what the hold of this film is, is going to be. Certainly, the reviews have been, let's say, Mixed. So, Sean, I, I want to bring you in on this because the narrative kind of so far has been with a movie that that comes out day and date, it's going to maybe make less money than otherwise would have been expected with, you know, all the asterisks of who knows what to expect because we've never been in this situation before and COVID makes everything funky. That said, 
your forecast for this film was, I believe, 48. So you were pretty on the money with this one. You know, what's your response to a film like this? For many people, this is an overperformance, or at least it's not an underperformance like we've seen with other day and date releases, like, say, Many Saints of Newark. Yeah, and I think kind of first and foremost, we always have to contextualize what expectations are and what what forecasts are. The studio itself was expecting somewhere in the 30 million range. And generally, like as an industry, when we talk about over or underperforming, it kind of always coalesces around what the studio says publicly. And not all not all studios always come out and say that. Universal is pretty regular about putting out their numbers. And it being a streaming release obviously made this way different. I mean, our our range was was 40 to, I believe, 55 at the end. So it kind of landing right in the middle there. Uh, and it could have easily you know gone lower because it was very difficult to tell what portion of that older audience was going to come out. And it ended up being fairly similar splits. The first film had a 59% share over the age of 25. This one was 56%. Pretty similar. And even before the streaming component, we already expected this to kind of drop off because most horror sequels, especially sequels to legacy revivals, kind of drop off from their predecessors once you've burned off that initial massive demand to just kind of see a reboot. Similar to what happens to Star Wars. It's always the first movie's the biggest and then you see a drop off. And that I think that applies... In a, in a situation like this, I don't know if does that does that same situation does that quite apply to something like a No Time to Die because that's those aren't so much like mm. discrete series as an ongoing franchise. Yeah, I, and again, I think it's it's all contingent on the circumstances and the situation of the franchise at the time because when Casino Royale came out, it, James Bond was in a rough spot. Uh, Pierce Brosnan, as beloved as he was. Most of his movies had kind of mixed reception, at least compared to some of, compared to Goldeneye. But then you had Casino Royale just really change the game for that franchise, and people fell in love with Daniel Craig, and it became a, a bigger box office series, at least compared to where where Brosnan's movies had been. But by the time you know you passed Skyfall and Spectre, which a film I think really felt like the end of his run to a lot of people. Six years later, you come out and say, no, this is really the end. And this is something, guys, that we've been speaking about in recent weeks. There's factors like the length of runtime of a movie and, you know, just how audiences respond to a movie for them to keep on coming back if you're a big fan that goes on opening weekend. We've seen that with Venom and its great box office run. But I think it's a concern that we have with Halloween Kills, despite its $49 million debut. And I think especially with No Time to Die, as you're talking here, Sean, this movie held on for second place in its second weekend, dropping 56%, grossing $23.7 million from 4,400 screens. It's almost at $100 million here in North America, but building on these points, Sean, what's your reaction on No Time to Die's sophomore frame in the market? I think it's respectable. You know, if you, we look at Spectre, that dropped 52% in its second weekend six years ago, so not a huge difference, and we have to factor in that No Time to Die also had, you know, extra, a lot more preview showings from Wednesday and Thursday to factor in that factored into that opening weekend, so that it kind of inflated that number a little bit. And Spectre didn't face a a forty nine million dollar opener in its second right. weekend with you know a lot of audience that you know maybe not not a shared genre audience, but certainly age wise there was some some interest there. Also enjoying good holds this weekend. We had uh, Venom, Let There Be Carnage, and The Addams Family 2 in third and fourth place, respectively. Uh, Venom is now up to $168 million domestic, and Addams Family 2 at $42.1 million domestic. Uh, and then 
Guys, uh, bringing up the top five. Daniel, it was a movie that you and I both really enjoyed. 20th Century Studios, The Last Duel opening to, I think it's it's fair to say a disappointing 4.7 million from uh, just over 3,000 screens. You know, the narrative here is that this is uh, systemic of the continued problem of not being able to get older moviegoers back to the movies. Uh, Looking at the demographics of who went on opening weekend, over 50% of the audience were over 35. Um, Definitely a a quote-unquote older skewing movie, but not many people did show up on opening weekend for this one. You pointed out exactly this is really this is really symbolic of of that target audience that isn't ready to go back yet. And I also wonder you know, how much marketing effort was really put into this as a 20th century title that Disney was sending out and it it was kind of in an odd position coming out against Halloween and after James Bond. You really kind of wondered, you know, is a two and a half hour movie with this subject matter going to stand out in, in this the most crowded marketplace that we've seen since before the pandemic. Would it have made sense to open it maybe in November or December when award season is really starting to kick in? But that, that's not going to be any less crowded. I mean, <laughs> this is true. I'm, I'm, maybe just from the perspective of by then, maybe more of that potential audience would be going back and, and maybe ready to see this kind of movie. It, I mean, it's all hypothetical. It might not have done any better, uh, but it certainly is, you know, kind of an un, another unfortunate example of, how we have to be careful about expectations on these movies because we were already conservative on this. I think our our final forecast was around in the high single digit millions, uh, and this still came in under that. Yeah, definitely. I think a concern as we head into award season, just trying to get these adult audiences comfortable to come back. I think we're at the point right now where it's going to have to be a marketing task from both distribution and exhibition to communicate uh, the the safety right now of going to the cinema when compared to other out-of-home entertainment destinations like going to bars and restaurants. I think definitely a, a, a number of consumer awareness campaigns are warranted uh, looking at the results of these films. And part of those efforts, of course, is making sure that films can reach as many audiences as possible and feeling comfortable at the theaters. Rebecca, you actually went to see The Last Duel at an AMC in a slightly different screening. I did. So uh, last week, AMC rolled out to just over uh, 100 markets in North America, open captioning, um, which to people, you know, maybe not familiar with the opening versus closed captioning distinction, basically open captioning is subtitles. Um, They're releasing for every new film that comes out, at least one screening is, is going to have these you know, subtitles. Uh, The screening that I saw, it was a perfectly reasonable evening, you know, 6.15 showtime. It wasn't like it was at 11 a.m. on a Tuesday, if if I wanted to get out for that. And I really enjoyed it, honestly. I would prefer to see any movie in the theater over at home. Let me just start there. You know this about me. Obviously, that's the case. But when I started to go back to movie theaters post, you know, having to watch everything on my TV during the pandemic. As someone who 
does have a moderate hearing loss, one thing I really missed was having the ability to put subtitles. Because normally I put subtitles on everything. And, you know, you go to the movies and you're enjoying it and everything's great and the sound is great and the picture quality is great and the experience is great. But you can't make everything out. So I think AMC rolling out these opening captions is is really great. It just makes it easier for a wider variety, wider groups of people to get in and see these movies, whether they're people who are deaf or like myself, who just have, you know, a hearing loss that makes going to the movies a little bit, you know, it doesn't keep me from doing it, obviously, but it just means I don't pick up the dialogue. And then another group that was cited in in why AMC ruled this out is um, people who speak English as a second language, who maybe just need those subtitles like as a little boost. Or, you know, just people who want to watch their movies with subtitles. I know that's a, that's a lot of people who do have English as a first language and do have great hearing. So um, I, I was really impressed that, that AMC uh, is, is rolling this out. It was professionally done. The, the Disney trailers uh, had open captionings on them. The non-Disney trailers did not. But I have to assume that's just because this is literally the first two days they're doing it. And eventually those trailers, you know, will 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 have subtitles as well. Speaking of Disney films, though, Sean, uh, we had a, a pretty big list of release date changes that has hit our inbox over the last few days. Luckily, I would say not the caliber of release date changes that we've been experiencing over the past 18 months from Disney, where, oh, this film that was going to come out one year is being pushed to, you know, 12 months from then. It read more like the sort of normal (laughs) release date changes we would see in a normal year. Uh, What are we looking at with that? Yeah, a lot less panic on this one and more normality, I would say. So we start out with Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness. That was initially scheduled to come out March 25th. It's now going to be the summer opener on May 6th. Uh, And one positive there is it gets it away from Warner Brothers and DC's The Batman, which opens in early March. Uh, We'll probably talk about that a little bit more in a minute. Had a big trailer release over the weekend with a lot of positive buzz. Kind of makes sense. Marvel and DC don't want to go so head to head there. So that move also pushes the Thor sequel, Love and Thunder, from May to July 8th. Uh, Black Panther, interestingly, now will move from July 8th to November 11th, which is one week after another DC movie called The Flash. And then I think, honestly, some of these moves were were predicated probably around production scheduling and competition. But also the next major change, Indiana Jones pushed back a virtually a full year from July of 22 to June 30th, 2023. That takes it out of direct competition with Black Adam which was also uh, is slated to come out on the same weekend in 2022. But we've also seen there's been there have been production delays and uh, a Harrison Ford injury that has kind of set things back there. So I think that might have been at the heart of some of these Disney moves. Um, and then we also look at the Marvels that went from November 11th of next year to February 17th of 2023. And the domino effect concludes with Ant-Man and the Wasp, Quantum Mania going from February 17th, 2023 to July 28th, 2023. So another Marvel domino effect. So basically every Marvel MCU film has shifted back by one release date. And now we're getting three Marvel films next year as opposed to four. Not too crazy. Exactly. Is this also kind of a side effect of just the 
the interconnected nature of the Marvel movies where think you know so. you get to a certain point in the story cycle and if you move one of them then all the others have to move as well because exactly. you know they, they all depend on one another story wise but then there's also things we've talked about before in terms of you know oh this is a 3 month promotional cycle uh at least and so they can only do so many of them at a time you can't really push two of them up against one another Right. And that's a fair point. And that now leaves a five month gap almost between Spider-Man and Dr. Strange. Uh, so one kind of speculates that there will probably be some Disney plus Marvel series releasing in between there that could lead into whatever's coming next after that. Outside of the, uh, the MCU territory, Russ, we've also seen some, um, some release date changes across other studios though. Again, as with Disney, nothing really crazy. One paramount, title and one universal title have been moved uh, from Paramount, The Lost City, which was previously titled The Lost City of D, which has nothing to do with the movie The Lost City of Z, which might have something to do with the title change, was previously dated for April 15, 2022. And uh, that, The Lost City, will now come out on March 25th, 2022. And uh, so that means the movie's been pulled forward by about three weeks. Uh, And then from Universal, the uh, untitled M. Night Shyamalan thriller, uh, which we understand will be called Knock at the Cabin, uh, has now uh, also pulled up slightly from February 17, 2023, up to Friday, February 3, 2023. So that's a move of just two weeks. So a lot of uh, activity here in the marketplace. It looks like the chips are falling into place. Sean, when we were talking about that 2022 forecast, you were mentioning that back half of the year still needing to be filled in. So we're going to be looking forward to your latest long-range forecast uh, analysis on boxofficepro.com to see where we're at right now with these latest changes. But let's forward a little bit here towards this weekend. We've got another string of new releases coming in to build on that momentum, as Rebecca mentioned earlier in the episode, that's three consecutive $100 million plus weekends at the domestic box office. That's going to be my first question for you, Sean. Is it going to be four? (laughs) And then I'm going to follow up with uh, what's in the front of everyone's minds, Dune's opening weekend here in the United States. Yeah, I think the 100 million mark, it'll be close and it will it will hinge on how well Dune can do and how if it can overperform in any way. This is a hard one to talk about for a lot of reasons. I think the streaming component, obviously, uh, we can talk about that ad nauseum, uh, but also the fact that this there is a very diehard fan base that is really excited for this movie and strong reviews are helping. But it's also a question of how much of that casual audience is going to is going to turn out. And I think there could be a little bit of a James Bond factor here in, in that we saw really strong pre-sales for those first few weeks on No Time to Die. And that kind of drove these bigger and bigger expectations. Um, and that's partly because we got spoiled by Venom. I, I want to avoid that happening with Dune, especially since it's not exclusive to theaters. Uh, but at the same time, I do see this as the kind of movie that people will go, I could watch this at home, but I really think I should see this in a theater. So... You know, over under, I think obviously this this movie really should open north of Blade Runner 2049, probably the best comparison since it is Villeneuve's previous movie and kind of a a similar fan base target audience. But I think it could go a little higher, Um, you know, maybe over under 40 million. That might be a little conservative. It could go higher. But I think that's kind of a fair range based on, you know, what we've seen from James Bond and other films these last few weeks. And then we've got uh, from 20th Century Studios, guys, I have to be honest, 
I haven't seen any advertising for this one at all anywhere. Ron's Gone Wrong, an animated title. We've seen a film like Adam's Family 2 basically set the table in terms of those expectations with that movie obviously being on PVOD day and date. Uh, Sean, what range are you looking at roughly for something like Ron's Gone Wrong in the market? I think just considering the fact that it is an original property and we saw Adam's Family 2 open to around, I believe, mid-teens just a few weeks ago, I would expect less here. Uh, maybe upper single-digit millions, but maybe a little higher. I, I, it's it's going to be within that range. and It's another 20th century title being distributed by Disney. So uh, I think that might partly explain the marketing yeah. <laughs> issues you kind of alluded to there, but we'll see. I've seen marketing. It looks cute. I'm getting Big Hero 6 vibes. Yeah. I'm going to I'm gonna be the one who is optimistic on this one. And um, if I prove to be wrong and it doesn't do well, then I can ask our producers to go back and retroactively delete me having said that. <laughs> we'll, keep it, but, we'll keep it in. Just, yeah. just shame you. It certainly is one of those movies that, that could do a little better than expected. I think more and more parents are going back. But, you know, as we've said many times, there's still... Uh, a lot of a lot of parents that just don't want to take their kids out in public yet. And then on the specialty side, we've got the long-awaited and highly anticipated, I know, for a lot of art house and independent theaters that usually make a lot of money uh, from titles from director Wes Anderson, is the French Dispatch uh, coming out this weekend as well. Sean, this is always a really tough uh, ask to do as you're forecasting things. And we're not really sure what that screen count is going to be. What data points are you looking at for the French Dispatch? Well, yeah, we. this is honestly one I'm not sure that we'll put out a solid forecast on because it is expected to be limited. I'm pretty sure it'll be under 100 theaters. When I look at that and I look at you know Wes Anderson and, and, and that audience, I kind of think back to something like Birdman a few years back. That opened in exactly 50 theaters and made 1.4 million. I, I think Wes Anderson commands the kind of interest and you know, probably the awareness for this movie at this point, uh, given how often it's been delayed throughout the pandemic itself, to maybe get close to that kind of number. Uh, it might not hit it. Obviously, we're comparing a pre-pandemic movie to a pandemic movie now, but that usually that $1 million mark for that kind of opening with this kind of pedigree of a movie uh, would usually be fair. But again... Not not the official forecast at this point. Right. It's it's so hard to, to place a solid number for films that need a little bit of time to grow and develop into the market. Uh, but as you mentioned, I think a million dollar plus uh, estimate is probably, I think, a, a fair forecast looking at how other specialty titles have opened in the market. This being one that has crossover appeal to potentially go wide in the coming weeks depending on those uh, figures. So thanks so much uh, for that forecast, Sean, on the domestic side. I'm gonna take it uh, real quick over to international numbers just so we get caught up to where that global recovery is at. We mentioned Dune's opening weekend here domestically. The film is now running at 129.7 million in its overseas run, where it had, I think, up to five weeks of theatrical exclusivity before that uh, day-and-date debut on HBO Max could really come in and chip away at those domestic numbers, which, guys, we opened with that $49 million opening weekend of Halloween Kills and SVOD day-and-date at home. We saw the detrimental effects internationally of day and date come up once again. As I mentioned, something that Dune avoided by releasing early overseas, Halloween Kills opening in 20 international markets, 
to $5.4 million. Guys, not a single number one finisher in the lot. The film really struggled out of the gate. As we know, the horror audience is very loyal. They also are very active online. I'm not sure what the impact of piracy was on a title like that. Really struggled to get out of the gate. We still have some key markets in the future for the title for it to recover some of that lost ground overseas with France opening on October 20th, Russia October 21st, alongside Germany, Italy, and then on October 22nd, Spain. So a slower rollout there, but I am very, very nervous on what this day and date availability in the US is going to mean in terms of that international box office. We know piracy is a massive problem and a pristine digital print can really upset the market overseas. Moving on to the last duel uh, we mentioned, it struggled uh, domestically, looks here, like it's also struggling overseas as well, unfortunately. The film opening in third place in Italy, fourth place in Brazil, fifth place in Mexico, a sixth place opening in the UK, Germany, and France. That's a 4.2 million debut from 37 markets, giving it a $9 million opening haul globally. Not the best of start for this adult-leaning title. Russ, we have a new trailer for Warner Brothers' The Batman starring Robert Pattinson. Um, my reaction to the trailer was, um, wow, it's very dark and very, you know, monotone and sepia. <laughs> what was your response? <laughs> what, what were your thoughts here? So you've just described a Batman movie. Yeah. <laughs> Look, uh, Robert Pattinson is probably the most interesting actor of uh, his generation of actors. He does some wild stuff and he commits to a lot of unusual projects, uh, which makes him committing to a Batman movie in itself unusual. Uh, and so, yeah, it's, and it's, it's Matt fun Reeves. to see. Matt Reeves is good. He's a good director. Yeah, I he like did him. that gritty relaunch of the Planet of the Apes. I mean, just judging yeah. on that alone and the Robert Pattinson casting, as, as you mentioned, Russ, I think Pattinson right now is one of my favorite Hollywood uh, leading men. I'm a little excited. I was excited by the footage I saw. What did you guys think? I think the footage is is intriguing. You know, it's great to see Zoe Kazan as Catwoman doing some stuff there. Paul Dano is the Riddler. He looks like he's deep in bizarro mode. Uh, Colin Farrell is under about 70 pounds of makeup and prosthetics as the Penguin. Uh, I love Colin Farrell. All of this is interesting to me. Uh, you know, you give me a run of the bill in Batman movie and I don't know how much I care because I've seen a few of those at this point. Uh, you know, but you show me something by a director who has a point of view from, with an actor who is interesting and a great supporting cast. Uh, yeah, I'm curious about this. And Sean, to close up this side of the conversation before our feature interview segment, after that trailer debut, looking at that buzz on social media, are things trending upwards for the Batman? I, I would definitely expect big things. I think this is arguably probably the buzziest trailer that's come out since the Spider-Man No Way From Home trailer a couple of months ago. Um, and, you know, being the, being in March and kind of essentially that first major you know, event tentpole of next year, uh, unless I'm forgetting something, I, I think that will mean a lot going into the spring when we should be really at the next next phases of of recovery, both domestically and globally. And for uh, those of you like myself who are trailer-holics, you can check out the box office company Trailer Network on YouTube for more trailers as they come out. 
favorite part of going to the movies, seeing the trailers, <laughs> I got to admit. But uh, now shifting to our feature interview of this week, uh, guys, I did a really interesting interview with uh, Russ, as you mentioned, at the top of the episode, Patrick Schweiss of Sedona, Arizona's Mary D. Fisher Theater. Uh, it's a really interesting programming concept they have there where it's it's two films a day and they really do vary up. They mix up uh, the types of films that they show. It's not just, uh, you know, films having two, three-week runs. So I'm excited to, to share that interview with you guys. I think it's a really, uh, really interesting theater. Patrick, thank you so much for joining us today. I, I had the opportunity to do some research into your theater, and now I really want to go to Sedona. <laughs> there you go. We're, ki- we're kind of a nice little gem hidden here among the red rocks of Sedona. So yes, I hope you do come down and join, join us here at the Mary Fisher Theater. I swear, I just want to do a road trip that's just bouncing around between different, you know, independent art house theaters. I, it'll just be pure popcorn will be my diet totally. for, for months. <laughs> yeah, I totally agree with you. And you are welcome anytime. There are such cool art houses around the country and around the world. I mean, we've really got a nice, nice cornerstone of the marketplace with some really creative, nice, wonderful venues. Well, I'd love to find out some more about uh, about the Mary D. Fisher. Can you give me a sense of, of the history of the theater and its connection with the Sedona International Film Festival? And then who is Mary D. Fisher? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I'm I'm glad you asked that question. So the the thing that happened first was the Sedona International Film Festival. So we were a festival before we were a theater. So our Sedona Film Festival is turning 28 this year. We're very proud of that. And our Mary D. Fisher Theater is about to turn 10. So it's kind of exciting that we had this opportunity. What happened was back in 2011, we realized that we had become much, much more of than just a year-round, a once-a-year film festival. The festival had grown from three days to nine days uh, since its inception at that point, and we were renting one of the multiplexes across the street, 45 of the 52 Tuesdays, to bring special events in throughout the year. And we realized, why are we doing that when we could just build our own theater and have an art house movie venue for Sedona? So we kind of investigated it and looked into this building that used to be a bank. So it's it's kind of a funny looking building. Uh, and I often tell people it's one of the ugliest buildings in Sedona. And you'll find the cutest little art house theater in it. And everyone agrees that it's absolutely amazing. It was built as a bank long ago and then became a call center for a marketing company. And so it's a very nondescript building. And then you walk in and you're just mystified by the beauty of this gorgeous 112 seat theater in this most nondescript building. And so at that time, Mary D. Fisher was on my board of directors and she's an incredible, incredible philanthropist, artist, humanitarian. She's an artist, a fabric designer. Her family was Fisher Oil up in Detroit, Max Fisher. You know, they established foundations and wherever they were living, they gave very generously. And Mary's passion was film and the arts. And she fell in love with the idea of us building our own little theater and made it possible for us. So we're very, very grateful to Mary Fisher and to all of our supporters who have really poured tens and hundreds of thousands of dollars into supporting us over all these years. And it's been an amazing, amazing run of nine and a half now going on 10 years of our art house theater. The community has totally supported the theater and uh, so much so that we're about to embark on uh, an expansion campaign and adding a second screen to the theater. So we're really excited about that. So it's, it's an exciting process, exciting time for us. I, I love the, the, the flip flop of um, typically you see these lovely old theaters closing and getting turned into a, 
bank or a grocery store or something. Right. And I like that a different building, you're like, no, we're going to turn this into a movie theater. Yes. Yeah. And it's so cool. And it's just so funky and cool. And it's, it's fun to tell that to people to look for the most untheatrical looking building in town and you're going to find us there. And it's, and people just are in awe when they walk in our doors. Uh, outside of those Tuesdays when you would do programming for the festival and outside those, those nine days of the actual Sedona Film Festival proper, uh, you still screen things throughout the week, independent of, of the film festival. Oh, right, 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 right. So we are an every day of the week, two films a day, every day of the year. Um, here at the Mary Fisher, so we have a four o'clock and a seven o'clock show um, and strictly art house, foreign, that kind of product. You know, we have a wonderful partnership with a multiplex across the street here in Sedona and in the state of Arizona, of course. Um, and we rent their facilities during the film festival. So they are really committed to the box office films and the Hollywood blockbusters and the first run films. We don't do any of that. We strictly focus on art house fair and foreign films and documentaries and those type of things that wouldn't normally make it to a, to a theatrical run in a megaplex. Um, and so our audiences really respect that and really love that we're bringing some culture and some extra film events and things that they normally wouldn't be able to see if we wouldn't be here. It looks like a really, just, just from their website, a really nice eclectic combination of programming. It looks like, you know, you have some, some local stuff I would imagine. And then, even some non-film content. I saw a bit about an upcoming yeah. uh, magician. I mean, you're, you're set up for live theater yeah, and live yeah. events as well. We've become, and this was this name was given to us, not, not by us. We didn't make this up. Uh, we didn't brand ourselves this. Our customers did. We had several people within the course of a month, a couple of years ago, that came and said, you know what? You are the cultural heart of Sedona. We experience so many wonderful things when we come to the Mary D. Fisher Theater because on any given week, we'll have you know, two art house movies, movies that will open. We'll have the Met Opera. We'll have a ballet from the Bolshoi on screen. We'll have a London West End production. We'll have a discussion series and we'll have a live show. So, you know, it, it's an eclectic mix, as you said, of a combination of really wonderful art house theater fair, alternative content and some live performances. We, we purposely built the theater so that the screen could move back on tracks and we have a small performance space. So, it's nine feet by 19 and a half feet of performance space, but at least we can do some smaller productions. A magic show is a magic show and comedians, as you're seeing on coming up at our theater. We're the home for the improv troupe here in Sedona and the poetry slams and all sorts of wonderful live events. So it's kind of this wonderful, eclectic, artsy, real cultural mix. And so we're very proud of that our own members have labeled us the cultural heart of Sedona because we really want people to experience that. We had a, a couple in from Toronto. And as you know, Toronto has amazing, amazing with the Toronto Film Festival and oh, the, yeah. the Lightbox Theater and everything. They've got incredible you're fare. You're not starving for, for a good art house fair in Toronto. No, you're not starving for things there. We had a couple visiting from Toronto that came to me one night and, and said, you don't know us, but we've been here for a week. We're from Toronto. And five of the seven nights we were in Sedona, we were here at your theater experiencing something different every night. And it was such a rewarding thing to hear that people really, even visitors, considered us a viable way to spend their time and their money here in Sedona and, and checking out some things that wouldn't normally be on a vacation, you know, agenda. So it was kind of cool. And we, we get stories like that all the time of the people that come in to visit and our locals. I mean, there was, there's our locals will be here five, six times a week uh, catching different things. And it's, it's very fun. It's really rewarding. 
just from from my own perspective as a as a moviegoer, as a movie lover, as a fan of the theater, you know, a festival screening, it's a lot different than a normal screening. You have the Q&As, it feels a little bit more like an event. You're not necessarily doing so much <laughs> eating of the popcorn and drinking of the soda. Um, and I really kind of get that vibe from, from the Mary D. Fisher when you say, oh, it's a different, it's a different movie every day. You're not going to hold something and have it book up the theater for three weeks. It, it really right. does feel like it's kind of inspired a little bit by the, by the festival ethos of eventizing it. It really, it really is. And, and I'm glad you caught that too. It's, it's, um, you know, we we're so much more than a film. We call it an experience, you know, you come to, you know, you can go anywhere and have a film and anywhere and see a film, even at home on your laptops, anything, everybody does it. And you can go to the multiplexes and there's nothing wrong with that. There's a great market for that to see a film, see a movie. You often go to art house venues for the experience. And that experience is exactly what you say. A little bit of that blend of a festival feel where you've got Q and A's or zoom Q and A's or a discussion happening after the film. Um, it's, it's much more that we, we call it a year round festival happening here in Sedona because there's so many films are bringing in each week. It almost does feel like there's a film festival almost every day yeah. here at the Mary Fisher theater. So it's, it's kind of exciting and, and, and it's exactly that vibe that we're going for. We want people to come to the films and say, wow, that was so much more than a movie and talk about it and tell their friends. It's, it's such an interesting way of looking at at the art house theater scene. I mean, as someone who has experience with art house theaters and who has experience specifically within the festival landscape and is the executive director of the Sedota International Film Festival, what are there, are there some lessons that you think art house theaters or even just independent theaters could take from how festivals approach the ideas of customer service and of providing an experience? And that's a really, really good question, good thought, good suggestion, because it is people are thirsty for so much more now. I mean, you can there's a new streaming service popping up every single day, much to the chagrin of us theater owners and managers, because, you know, ultimately we we love that the streaming services exist. There's a great market for that. People should experience films as long as they're experiencing films, they should experience them any way they can. But for us getting people to have that communal experience in a theater surrounded by other movie lovers and having that opportunity for conversation. That's what it's all about. It enriches the experience, you know, and that's what I would love to impart to, you know, all of our colleagues at the megaplexes at other art house theaters is that is so appreciated. That experience is so appreciated by your audience and it takes going to the movies to the next level. And it's something that is so easy to do, especially now with Zooming and with capabilities. You can dial up a filmmaker for almost every screening or someone affiliated with the film and have that enhanced experience. And that's what people are going away talking about. You don't get that when you're watching a movie on your laptop at home or on your TV at home. Number one, you don't get that communal experience and seeing a film on the big screen in the dark the way they're meant to be experienced surrounded by those other people and then having that conversation even if there's not a conversation from a filmmaker at the end of the film just hearing what's happening in the lobby and as people leave and the conversations and the dialogue that's happening is absolutely magical and to be able to take that experience and make it not just the nine days of in our case the nine days of our festival into a 365 day a year experience is something really quite extraordinary how did that i mean it sounds like Given that, I mean, you're so 
baked into to the cultural scene in Sedona. Obviously, there's affection from from both sides, and you're a really necessary part of that community. Given that, I mean, what have you found to be the best way to really maintain that strong relationship with your customers, both pre-COVID, during the COVID era, and now? It's so incredible because um, how we keep engaged with our people and keep that thing, you know, that dialogue happening all year is we have probably, and I know that a lot of the other art house, art house theaters also have membership programs, but we have a really, really strong very dedicated membership program, very generous membership program. So in fact, in Sedona itself, we are the largest member supported organization, nonprofit organization in Sedona. Totally. So we're very proud of that. And so we engage with them constantly, daily through emails and keeping them updated on what's happening. And it became especially important. This is how we realized, you know, we always realized our members were incredibly, incredibly important to us, but it never was proven so much as during COVID. They came out of the woodwork. We had, we like all theaters around the world, ha had to close. And so we were closed five of the months of 2020. We were lucky enough to open at the end of August and been, have been open ever since the end of last August, which I know some movie theaters were not, we you know, haven't had that luxury. But during the five months we were closed, we've tried to find creative ways, as we all did, to engage our audiences and keep them engaged in our product and supporting us, even when they couldn't be here for a movie. So we did a, we started by doing a free, Every uh, free shorts film festival online every day at one o'clock, we got the incredible support because again, because we're a film festival, we had just completed our film festival. I got permission from our shorts filmmakers to share their films once a day with our audience. So we sent them a new, it's like the short film of the day at one o'clock every day when the pandemic hit and we had to shut down, we sent them a free short film to watch. And with a little clicker at the bottom saying, please help support us while we're closed. We are keeping all of our employees employed and asking them for donations, which they did. We did a membership campaign, which usually happens in April and May. Again, it was right during the heart of being closed down and people gave so generously and gave extra donations because they knew we were keeping our employees employed and that we were sending them things daily to watch and enjoy. And, and it wasn't just, hey, give us money or, hey, we're still right. here. It's, hey, here's some entertainment because you're sitting at right. home on your couch and you probably need right. it. Yeah. And, and the give us money either wasn't asked or it was a subtle thing at the very end saying, if you enjoyed this, please consider supporting us. Any, any donation helps. And we would get $5, $20, $200, $5,000 at different times just because people felt compelled that we were keeping them engaged and we hadn't lost sight of how important they are to us. Um, and that helped us. So it, number one, it helped us get through COVID and during the closure. But when we reopened again, um, we did some really wonderful things in the theater. Again, as all theaters did, we all had to adapt to the new reality of plexiglass and masking and all stuff. But we went the extra mile, which again, I'm sure a lot did of putting a uh, air scrubber system in a really advanced air scrubber system that is endorsed by NASA to keep things germ free that, um, scrubs not only the air but the surfaces and the chairs and things 24 7 it's being scrubbed and we actually created what we felt and have stood by the safest indoor experience in all of sedona you know like we we promoted it we are going to keep you safe here we did the social distancing thing we did the buy a put put your head in a seat campaign like you saw in at national football league in the basement with the fake people sitting in the stands so we could social distance people people felt so good that we were taking their health and safety first and foremost 
and still trying to keep them entertained. That when we reopened the theater, it just became this wonderful outreach and spreading out of support, financial and coming to the theater. So that really did, it really was made a big, big, big difference. Uh, to us and in our recovery from COVID. That's really great to hear, especially I I know with a lot of art house cinemas and a lot of these, you know, cultural institutions, uh, the the demographics of the ardent supporters, you know, often skews towards the older side of things. And we saw, you know, it just makes sense. It follows that they're a population that's pretty high at risk and there would be some reluctance, but you, you realize that and we're like, no, we're going (laughs) to, we're going to make sure, you know, it's okay. Yeah, it really is wonderful. In fact, because of the the Delta variant, we've just now gone back to asking people to mask up when they come in and when they exit. They can certainly take it off when they're watching the movie because there's not talking going on um, and they're they're sitting apart from each other. Um, and people have been really respectful of that. They're appreciating the fact that we're doing it for their safety and the safety of our volunteers and our and our staff um, and for each other. So it's again, it it's a testament to the strength and the dedication of our membership and our team, that there's just been this flawless, wonderful transition into and out of COVID and into whatever the next, you know, whatever the new reality is. We're coming back. We're all coming (laughs) back. It's time and it's a good time to get people back in the theaters, seeing films the way they should be seen on that big screen. No other way. No other way to do it. Yeah. Patrick, thank you so much. It's been great to speak with you and I'll look in on you when I finally plan my art house road trip. Please do. You're welcome anytime. Look for the funniest looking building in Sedona and you'll find the greatest little theater. And that'll wrap up this episode of the Box Office Podcast. Thanks again to Patrick Schweiss for joining us. The Box Office Podcast is produced by Record Edit Podcast and the Box Office Company. And thank you for listening, everyone. Please join us again next week. <laughs>